Hello, and welcome to another mini-episode of Self-Worst, with me, Brad Pearson, and just me. I'm sorry. I've failed yet again to book a guest. Oh well. Look, uh, it's hard to make a podcast all by yourself. If you've got a partner and hold each other accountable, I think that's the optimal situation for making a podcast. Or if you're just, or if you got like a network or whatever breathing down your neck, make it with a group of people. If you're responding to a weekly event like a show or the news. But if your partner is just yourself, then you're working with an asshole who sucks. So I keep saying I'm going to put out these uh, mini episodes behind the paywall. And I am. Uh, now that I have some idea of what I'm going to do every week. Um, honestly, though, given what's been going on in the world last couple of weeks, it feels a little gauche to ask for Patreon money for my stupid podcast. It was just a mass shooting this week, which has already taken our attention away from mass shooting last week. Which is like the most American shit ever. So I'm going to address all that later. Not at this time. Not in this episode. Um, you know, I'm sure there will be other fucking mass shootings uh, before then. What I'd like you to do, uh, if, if you can, is uh, donate to the uh, AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander, uh, community. There's some good organizations out there doing good work. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Um, once I get my shit together, we can talk about a Patreon. So this episode is going to be the first installment of a series of bonus episodes that I want to start making called Depression Bangers. It's going to cover, well, you know, sad music that we all love. That I love. We'll start with me and we'll go from there. Because I do maybe want to have other people on to talk about stuff. Uh, sad music that they like. So we're going to do one on Elliot Smith, uh, The Cure, Joy Division, uh, Blood Orange, Smashing Pumpkins, Nine Inch Nails, Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, I guess more specifically. Um, I want to do one on Joanna Sternberg, maybe Bonnie Prince Billy, maybe the Mountain Goats. I don't know. I'll come up with more. Those are just, that's just stuff the top of my head. Who else? Got any suggestions? Not the Smiths. I'm sorry. We're not doing the Smiths. Um, I mean, Morrissey's a fucking fascist and I don't like him. But I honestly just never liked the Smiths. Honestly. I'm not trying to just say that to absolve myself. If you like them, that's fine. If you still like them, that's fine. I don't give a shit. This episode isn't about consuming art by shitty people. That's a whole other topic. But honestly, if you want to throw the Smiths .05 cents... By playing them on Spotify, I, I, I don't care. They were just never in my thing. There's a couple of artists who I'm very proud to have never liked. Uh, the Smiths, Moby, Ariel Pink. The latter two, I maintain... Uh, are highly overrated. I understand that the Smiths are different. I know the Smiths are important. I know Johnny Marr is an excellent guitarist. I know they had a huge impact. Yes, yes. But I could never get past 
Morrissey and his fucking voice. It just doesn't do it for me. That like I can't. And I like some people with annoying voices. I did just mention the Smashing Pumpkins. And I'm currently about to do the inaugural episode of Depression Bangers by a little guy named Connor Oberst. So, you know, voices being what they are. You work with what you got. For whatever reason, uh, I've been listening to a bunch of Bright Eyes lately. Uh, big band for our generation. Um, I feel that people either love them or hate them. I'm kind of both. I'm going to tell you why. Um, if you didn't listen to them back in the day, like when that shit was hot, then I don't know. I don't know if it'll have the same appeal like if you went and listened to it now for the first time I don't know what the legacy of that music will be are Zoomers gonna discover Bright Eyes one day and be like whoa like I don't know or will it be one of those kind of you had to be there generational things that future kids just aren't gonna get I don't know So if you never were a fan, if you didn't, if you were indifferent or you didn't like them actively, I don't know how much this episode is really going to do for you. Um, and I don't know if pausing this pod podcast and checking out their music now is really going to work for you either i don't know you know what i mean like it, it might not hit the same way if you don't hear it for the first time when you're 20 something in the early aughts like it just it's, it's maybe one of those things uh we're not gonna talk so much about the records themselves so much as we're gonna talk about my own personal relationship to the music itself that's more of what's about the subjective uh experience of the music right you get me you feel me do i uh uh is this interesting do you are, are are you excited to hear what i'm about to say next or have you already turned this off who gives a shit this is going to be bonus episodes which means even fewer people are going to listen to this than already listen to the main feed like i'm really it might as well be on the dark web It's crazy how little anybody's going to listen. It's it's nuts. It's great. It's actually quite liberating. Um anyway. I'll talk about specific albums and shit later to give you an idea maybe of where to start if you are interested in checking them out for the first time or if you want to revisit I don't know, whatever. Um, for me, this music is very much of a time. So I don't know. Um, I'm kind of curious if anybody is listening to this and if anybody, um, you know, has experienced it for the first time uh, is like listening to this music for the first time uh let me know i don't know you're probably not that's cool i think it's real ones only right now i think it's just people who listen to this who also listen to bright eyes first time around so that's a small group of people the real ones are on board right now I don't know. It's late winter, early spring, in the middle of March, you know, we're still kind of in that moody, uh, fucking somewhat nice, exciting, better than winter weather, but it's not quite fully nice out. Um, it's gonna rain all day tomorrow. Walked around, had to walk in the rain all day yesterday. The weather's been all moody and shit. It was foggy today. 
I've been nostalgic uh, and homesick for Nebraska. Haven't been home in a long time. Um, maybe that precipitated it. A couple of months ago, um, when Phoebe Bridgers smashed her guitar on SNL, uh, and it was a whole thing, that made me want to go back and listen to her music. And then I heard what she did with Connor Oberst. So maybe that got me thinking about it. I don't know. It was a confluence of many things. But for whatever reason, I haven't been able to stop listening to this guy's catalog for the last few weeks. And I've been posting about it a lot. I don't know. It's been on my mind. So here we are. I guess the reason isn't super important. Um... I have the window open. I don't know if you can hear the motorcycle going by, but, you know, again, organic podcast. Sounds of the city. Soundscapes. New York. The the heartbeat of the urban jungle. Right? I don't know. Um, I've been reconnecting... I've been reconnecting with this music uh, from a very specific time in my life and so I think that that somewhat fits the theme of the show so about Bright Eyes uh, if you I don't know are of a different generation or uh, have been in a coma or something um, they formed in 1995 in Omaha Nebraska they are the brainchild, uh, the moniker, more or less, of Connor Oberst. Uh, he's an Omaha native. Um, he was born in 1980, uh, meaning they've been a band since he was 15. Um, and there's, you know, no, no shortage of uh, media, critics, journalists, uh, puff pieces on him, calling him a prodigy and all of that, which I suppose he is. Uh, about me, I was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is the next town over. Uh, smaller, but it's the capital city. And I'm a few years younger than Mr. Oberst. Uh, there's an important note here about us both being Nebraskan. I'll get into it a little more later. Maybe this sounds silly. But I swear to you, there is a specific brand of Nebraskan sadness, of Midwest melancholy, the, the lonely ache of a train horn in the distance, the flat horizon, the open sky. Willa Cather knew about it. Read some Nebraskan writers, Willa Cather, Lauren Isley, or just works set in the greater Midwest. Plain Song by Kent Haruf. Of course, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. There's a darkness. Bruce Springsteen wrote a whole album about how creepy Nebraska is. I'm pretty sure he's never been there outside a tour. But he just, he knows there's some mythological weirdness. Elliot Smith, upcoming uh, subject of the show, uh, he, he was also born in Nebraska. He wasn't raised there, but I like to think that it was imbued in him. So we're going to do him later. But, I don't know. Nebraska, there's something about the place. If you know, you know. So I grew up with this music scene all around me. And in Lincoln, it was weird. I had no talent, but I was friends with a lot of talented people, people in bands. And everything was in the shadow of Saddle Creek, the indie label in Omaha that Bright Eyes was on. They had... Cursive, they had the faint. It was a whole thing. It was huge. Inescapable. And a phenomenon because 
as a Nebraskan, you felt overlooked, you know, flyover syndrome. Like the world was ignoring us and everything relevant was so far away in places we'd never been and may never go. And so there was this weird love-hate thing with all things Saddle Creek and with me and all my friends. Uh, Some were in bands, some were music enthusiasts. I had a lot of friends who were Saddle Creek super fans, unironically loved all of it. And other friends, I'd say my closer friends, who kind of hated it, rejected it. There was a bitterness. I guess you could call it sour grapes. There was a resentment, I guess, against this group of kids who'd done the same thing that our scene was doing, but very, very, very successfully. And resentment because they'd made it. Resentment because they were rich. There's no, it's, it's no real secret that the Saddle Creek bands, the Saddle Creek boys were all uh, of privileged upbringings, shall we say. So there was a class resentment before any of us really had the language for it. And there was a critical backlash. A lot of my friends, record store friends, music historians would assert that it was all overrated, overhyped. It was a media blitz. And there's some truth to that. Like a lot of it, I've gone back and listened to it recently and, uh, Yeah, it does not hold up. But there was something else in the Saddle Creek backlash. Particularly the Bright Eyes backlash that I couldn't identify until recently with the benefit of hindsight. There was this rage against... Connor Oberst for being a pussy and whiny and he needs to get a distortion pedal and he's soft and he's so self-involved and blah 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 emo kid right and these weren't frat boys and jocks saying this it was like Weezer fans Chuck Taylors and plastic rimmed glasses toxic Masculinity, our old friend, is so woven into the fabric of our society that I'd say, especially in a place like Nebraska, that it even permeates the artsy indie music scene. And I've talked about it on this podcast before that uh, I would join in on it. In, in, in particular towards, yeah, towards Bright Eyes. Towards this band that was like this local sensation and we just like couldn't have, couldn't have it. We'd mock his lyrics and his bleeding voice, that, that, that fucking like warbly like voice that he has, right? But then I'd be alone and... I'd turn on my first generation fucking click wheel iPod. And I'd listen to his music for hours and hours and hours on end. I had a pizza delivery job alone in my car, just blasting it, screaming along to the lyrics. And uh, I saw him perform live once um and i remember that show with clarity i went with a friend of mine who was an open bright eyes fan uh you know i was a closeted bright eyes fan and i didn't talk about it with my hater friends it feels weird to put it in those terms but that's kind of what it was like um because the his music, uh, uh, 
Connor Oberst's music, Bright Eyes, uh, it tapped into something. Um, this was in mid to late high school into early 20s for me. So teen angst and hormones and transitioning into a, uh, you know, a clinically depressed adult. Um, I'll never forget my first real depressive episode. I was a moody kid when I was a teenager. Um, you know, when I was listening to Nirvana and all the Nirvana ripoffs and like into new metal, uh, there's just like a lot of rage and, you know, teenage, teenage shit, regular, normal teenage shit. But even when I was eight years old, even when I was five years old, I was just a emotional kid. But this was different. I had this you know, sad boy brand depression when I was in high school and chalked it up to, yeah, being full of hormones and bad at dating and girls don't like me. Uh, you know, I'm sad, cry. Oh, I don't fit in, Urgh, angry. You know, like that kind of shit. Just regular teenage shit that you get past. And all my friends, it seemed like, they were getting past they could meet me on that level, but then, you know, when we were teenagers, but then they, it felt like they moved on and I wasn't, or it didn't go away. Like the situation changed, but the feelings stayed. Like the season changed into spring, but the snow wasn't melting away. And I felt for the first time this free-falling sense of dread, doom, despair. And it had nothing to do with teenage moods. I was 20, 21. And I was convinced that there was no future whatsoever. I got obsessed with the Iraq War, with peak oil, with nuclear weapons... I saw on the horizon, at all times, the end of everything. And I was supposed to just keep going to college, going to work, deliver pizzas, go to the mall, buy new pants, decorate Christmas cookies. It just made no fucking sense. It was insane to me that people weren't panicking. People were just going about their lives. Like, don't you know you're fucked? There was this sense of alienation, not just from the townsfolk, you know, from classmates, coworkers, but from my friends, my family, my loved ones. I'm old now, and I've had plenty more depressive episodes, some even worse than the first one, but I would never want to go back to that first time, ever. The first time, you have no idea what's happening. You've never been there before, and it just sets in on you. And you can intellectually know about the concept of depression and mental illness, but it doesn't prepare you for how it really feels in your body, in your soul. And so, when I heard this music, at first, I could see how people could deride it as incoherent whining, artsy bullshit. Pretentious, self-indulgent, self-obsessed, right? 
the warbly fucking vibrato voice, the screaming, not hitting the notes right, the jank and stank on the lo-fi recording, all the stupid sound clips and sketches and, you know, tape recorder music that was all just on top of there. It, at first listen, I thought it was ridiculous. Get up, like, like get a grip. Cheer up, emo kid. All that, right? But it haunted me. And I kept going back to try and figure out what the fuck it was. And it was that he was describing it. He was expressing it. And to an outsider, it does seem silly. When you're in the grips of depression and the narrative that it builds around you is so intense that you can't see anything else. And later, when, if, if you're lucky enough to write it out, you can look back on that headspace and see the dissonance. You can see the illusion once you step off the stage but because when you're when you're not under it, the way your brain talks to you seems absurd. The narrative is so hyperbolic and bombastic that when you're not in it, it's just stupid. But that's what it captured. The almost cartoonish glut of rage and despair. It's feels like being like what it what it captured was what it feels like being an emotional sensitive kid in a hypo macho conservative environment at the end of the day did it matter that he was a privileged rich kid or that he'd gotten successful probably in large part due to his privilege, and he was now even richer and famous. Maybe he was a pretty boy, like, you know, boyish, swoop-haired, the indie archetype. He was probably up to his neck and pussy. No. The dude was talking about topics that like before they were really the trendy topics that they are today. First, he was, I mean, he was highly critical of capitalism. He was a harsh critic of the war. was outspoken about money and commerce and the soul-crushing realities of adulthood and capitalism. He was talking about lefty shit before it was cool to do so. He had another band called Desaparecidos that was a fully political band. And none of us knew what Desaparecidos, the, the term was, uh, you know, before that. So, you know, it didn't really matter if he was rich. Like, if he was a rich kid from the suburbs or whatever. Like, uh, we love a class trader. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of my friends, and probably me too, had this resentment against him uh, because he was obviously getting laid left and right. I mean, he fucked Winona Ryder. He looked like Winona Ryder, okay? He, he, beautiful boy. Good looking guy. You put a guitar in those pretty boy hands... You give him the ability to write some sensitive, emotional songs. I mean, great. And I didn't figure it out until much later in life that that doesn't matter. That no amount of sex is going to make you feel better about yourself. It's not going to fix you. So... Let's talk about the albums. Um, 
I think I'm wide awake. It's morning uh, is probably the most approachable on the off chance that you've never listened and would like to start. Maybe that's a good place to start. I don't know. Maybe start with Fevers and Mirrors. That's my personal favorite. It's a much more, I don't know, defining Bright Eyes album. Um, there's some rawness to it still. He made it when he was like 20. Um, Lifted's the big one. That's that's the one that came out when he was like at his peak. And uh, music journalists were waiting with bated breath. It's good. Peak form. Not my personal favorite. Whatever. Letting Off the Happiness, 1998. It's like his first, well, kind of his first album. Might be the purest. Maybe the hardest to listen to. Because he made that show when he was like 17 years old. And there's so much screaming and moaning. And he trips over his own words. And it's all rough and raw. And there's like synths and harmonicas and saxophones like it's just like all over the place sonically it doesn't really it's just stylistically kind of crazy it's great there's also a collection of songs recorded between 1995 and 1997 um and that one's i mean and then you know if you really want to go back there's like fucking commander venus his high school band but that's, like, if you're already all the way in, you know? You know, I'm realizing I haven't even really talked about the actual songs. The actual depression bangers themselves. Would you look at that? I made an episode about Arguably the most navel-gazy music ever recorded. And I made it all about me and my feelings. My depression got sidetracked. You know? It, it, it's, that's the theme, baby. That's the theme. Like, I don't know. I'm finding kind of the... Uh, the I'm finding the format of these episodes as I go along. So this is the first one. It might be a little rough. That's okay. Much like his music uh, itself. It's, it's a little rough and there's trial and error and it's choppy sometimes. But you got to just see what sticks, you know? Let's begin with letting off the happiness. That's the first one I heard. I don't know. It's it's not, I guess not technically the first one that came out. I guess the collection of songs one came out first. Whatever. Shut up, nerd. It's the one I regard as the first Bright Eyes album. So what? Track one. If winter ends. Oh, come on. You're a sad kid in the Midwest where winter sucks ass. And you hear that song? Man. My first depressive episode came around during the winter. Um, and winter is just, I mean, objectively hard to get through out there. It's cold as fuck. It snows. And you can't go anywhere. You're just stuck inside. Uh, for the first, you know, for, for several years, I had seasonal affective disorder. Which, as I've talked about on this show before, uh, I overcame by just becoming depressed all year round. That was, that was my workaround for that particular ailment. Um, but I used to really have an adversarial relationship with winter. And getting through it was a thing. This was like a screaming anthem. You know? Fighting against 
the dying light at 4 p.m. The difference in the shades is another great one on this one. Uh, kind of a warm, romantic song that blossoms. It explodes into some screaming and, uh, and feelings. It's a big burst of emotion. Feels weird for me to talk about this as a 36-year-old man, seeing as how these songs are written by like a 17-year-old. But there's a, um, there's like a sensuality, a sad sexiness throughout this whole album. Touch and pull my hair, both great examples of that. Again, I was experiencing this in real time at the time, you know be weird if i was like getting horny listening to this now i'm not but i listen to it and i'm like oh yeah man these were there was like a a bedroom warmth to these songs that was nice it's hard to pick a particular song off of fevers and mirrors that really did it for me because i i that album's pretty solid, despite the, uh, you know, that stupid sketch with the radio station. Look, I mean, you have to just put up with sketches sometimes in records. If you listen to any hip-hop album from the 90s, you got to listen to their stupid sketches where they think they're real funny. You know, you got to let the artist be indulgent. That's how they get it all out, right? A scale, a mirror, and those indifferent clocks. It's great. It's got that... I don't know how to describe the sound. It's like sitting by a heater when it's cold out. There's an intensity. There's a burning passion. But it's you get the sense that it's surrounded by a cold world. You know? The calendar hung itself. Screecher. Banger. Great. Jealousy song. I mean, something vague. Another fucking just, you know, blossoms into a blistering screamo song. It's great. Ah, man. Hard to pick one in particular, honestly. Attempt to tip the scales. Kind of a shorter song. It leads into that stupid sketch, but it's a great it's it's a great one. Um, there's a lot of songs that kind of get like there's a good song in there, but it gets sort of obscured by like a long, you know, tape noise and experimental thing that's over top of it. Um, the big picture, which is the first track on Lifted, has this. There's this long car ride thing, but actually the song itself, once it actually gets to that part, is great. Lover I Don't Have to Love, banger. Bowl of Oranges, banger. You see, they're not all sad. There's also this, like a a sweet, sensitive side, uh, just sort of in love with the world and moved by everything around you. Um, and, a, and a kind of a cautious optimism, which is another thing that I was feeling at the time, but was really uh, afraid of in myself and wanted to hide from the world. I felt sort of, sort of like I can't be too too vulnerable here I was definitely a soft boy but like I could only show so much softness there was a lot more that I was just like I can't I can't go there I'm just gonna listen to Bowl of Oranges by myself Waste of Paint fantastic fantastic song about uh not liking anything you do, waste of paint, waste of tape, 
waste of time. I suck. The song. Fantastic. Lifted closes out with uh, Let's Not Shit Ourselves, which is just this long, it's like a fucking eight-minute track where he just, he goes through about how everything sucks. About how just like driving around, uh, looking out at shitty urban sprawl sucks. Uh, being a kid and being disappointed in yourself sucks. Uh, the news and the war uh, and the media drumming up war sucks. Uh, everything is bad, but that's okay. Great track. Hmm. What else? I'm going through. I'm going through the albums chronologically. At the bottom of everything, another one where you have to kind of sit through a little bit of a sketch before it gets to the song, but then the song actually rips. Um, we Are Nowhere and It's Now. That's a great one. That's one of my faves. Emmy Lou Harris is on that song. That's real nice. This is, again, this is the more kind of approachable, nicer kind of uh, bright eyes sound. A little more a little more polished, a little more radio friendly, you know? He'd grown up a little bit. He got some money. He got some accolades. And he was maybe, like, evened out a little bit by now. But was still, you know, still sad boy. I mean, first day of my life. Come on. What a fucking syrupy, cloying just tearjerker love song that's been at probably so many white people's weddings. It's great, though. It's a real Pinterest wedding banger. Love it. Another traveling song. It's great. Um, let's go to Digital Ash and a Digital Urn, which was... Uh, released simultaneously with I'm Wide Awake It's Morning. He had a double release. Very impressive. Very prolific. Blah, blah, blah. You know, you've heard all the... I don't know, you haven't heard all... I've read all of the uh, reviews uh, about how prolific and genius and blah, blah, blah he is and whatever. But this one's got some bangers. It wasn't... This album wasn't as digital as I wanted. Because I'd heard that he was making like a country-ass album and then like a digital album. And I was like, oh, hell yeah, he's going to make like a new wave, like The Cure album. Because I know I know he really liked The Cure and all the music critics were like comparing him to Robert Smith. And I was like, well, I mean, he is friends with The Faint. Maybe like he's going to make like a dark synth pop album. That's going to be cool as hell. It wasn't exactly that. But it's got some gems, for sure. Goldmine Gutted is incredible. Um, possibly my favorite Bright Eyes song, Easy Lucky Free, closes out that album. Just a banger. Just a banger. There's something about those earlier records. Fevers and Mirrors, Letting Off the Happiness. That I just... Like I said, can be unironically deeply moved by, but also make fun of. That Midwestern darkness I was talking about. It's even more insidious because no one talks about it. It's the Midwestern way. We pretend it's fine. We internalize it. We drink ourselves to death. Our next generation does the same thing. That's our way of life. This dude talks about it. Point blank. And I remember a lot of people deriding his music because it wasn't all his experience. He had some song about a Baby drowning in a bathtub that was made up, wasn't real. Oh, he's making stuff up. Like, who gives a shit? 
Like Bruce Springsteen never worked a day in his life in a factory. It's songwriting. My love hate thing with bright eyes has always been a love hate thing with myself. My own minds, my own emotions. There's this cloying sincerity and earnestness to it. It's not even tempered with irony or humor. It's not masked with a dance beat. He hadn't yet developed a more refined, you know, country style that he had on his later albums. There's this sense that he doesn't even quite know what to do with it. It's just pure, uncut, emotional music. And it's not for everyone. And it's not for all the time. I hadn't listened to any of these albums since the mid-aughts. There's a bunch of later albums and solo stuff that I hadn't really heard when it came out. Honestly, it's pretty good. But it's not the same. My old ass is, uh, you know, the feeling of nostalgia, right? We're getting to that point in our lives as millennials, aren't we? And now that I've opened up that fault, it's probably not going to stay in my regular rotation. I have to be in a very specific mood to listen to this kind of stuff. But I'm glad it's there for that purpose. So, I thank it for its time. And I'll put it away for the next time I need it. That's about it. I'm Brad Pearson. Until next time, I don't know, keep your ear to the ground, right? Goodbye.
better sharpen you and procreate You've got vacation days, then you might escape to a condo on the coast I set my watch to the atomic clock I hear the crowd count down till the bomb gets dropped I always figured there'd be time enough I never let it get me down But I can't help it now Looking for faces in the clouds I've got some friends I barely see But we're all planning to meet We're laying bags as dead as leaves All together for a turn Don't you weep? Don't you weep? Don't you weep? Don't you weep?